Christmas. Do you have any unique traditions at Christmas? I think every family does things, uh, whether it's when you gather with the family, uh, what day it is, is it Christmas Eve, is it Christmas, does it matter? There were two that I remember growing up that I still try to, well, one of them I try to perpetuate today. We have an anniversary clock, one of those clocks that has a, a dome cover that you wind once a year. And growing up, we wound the anniversary clock that belonged to my father's parents, my grandma and grandpa Hatfield. Claude was his name. Grace Elizabeth was her name. And it's been passed down where it ended up at my house now. But we wind it once a year on Christmas Eve. Only problem is it quit running like seven days ago. I'm trying to think, did I not wind it enough or is that a signal that we need to change the tradition? I don't know. I'm not going to touch it until Christmas Eve and then do my best to wind it up and hopefully it will make it to the next Christmas Eve. The other tradition is one that totally strange and unique to our family, but my father would on Christmas Eve before he put the children to bed. If you don't remember, I'm one of three. I have an older sister, Gracie, an older brother, Jerry. I'm the youngest, the favorite, of course, and the one who always obeyed, the one who never got in trouble because I just watched my older brother and sister and did the opposite of what they did growing up. Maybe you've done that too. But my father whistles the three bears, the story of the three bears. I mean, where did that come from? He whistles. You can, through the whistling tones, make out the words of the papa bear and the mother bear and the baby bear going all the way through the story. And then that's it. Whistling the three bears. I think I tried it one time with our children and they let me know by a voice vote, not a secret ballot, never to try that again. (laughs) just didn't work. You know, some of those traditions, as strange as they may seem, work. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes you may try to push it or force it. Sometimes it just, it's just not you. I think a lot of people feel that way about Christmas in general. We know what we're supposed to do. We know how we're supposed to act. We know what's important, but yet trying to adapt that to our situation, trying to come up with meaningful gestures or stories or traditions, maybe we still hunt for them. That's okay. As long as we understand and know that the basis of this season of the year began way, way, way back as we tell the story that's found in God's Word. We've said it before that God is pursuing us and He's pursuing us in a relentless way. We've said, and I just want it bears repeating each and every time we gather here on these Sundays of Christmas, that in the very beginning there was beauty and holiness. It was a perfect creation. God created all things out of nothing. 
He put Adam and Eve there and based upon choices that they made that have affected the entire human race, we know that that's a broken world that we live in. In the beginning, it wasn't that way, but now it is. We also know as we look to the future that one day, and that's in God's timetable, he's going to bring all things to their proper end. Everything's going to be wrapped up. Everything's going to make sense. And we're going to be returned to that restored creation. We're going to be ultimately what God intended for us to be. But right now, we're not. Right now, we're in that in-between period of time. We're what? We're in the midst of brokenness. God is pursuing us. He's chasing after us. He wants desperately, that's how the Bible describes it, to restore us. And though ultimately all of creation will be restored in the here and now, God is pursuing us that we might have that abundant life here upon this earth, that we might experience a portion of what eternity will be like. And how is he doing that? How is he pursuing us? Well, one of the ways, one of the main ways that God has been doing that is through this concept called a covenant. He's been pursuing us through uh, not contracts, not agreements, but covenants, covenants that God initiates in a covenant that goes all the way back to the beginning. It goes all the way back to when the world was destroyed by flood with Noah. There was a covenant with Noah that that would never happen again. And God is true to his word. He made a covenant with Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham later. He told him that his descendants would number the stars. Abraham had a tough time with that, being childless. But God kept his word and kept his promise. And then over there in the book of Exodus, we have God making a covenant with not just Moses, but with the people and God speaking to the entire nation. It was a little ups and downs there. There were some bumps along the way. But God was true to his word. And it's part of his pursuit of us through these covenants for us to understand and know how they relate to this time of year. If you go through the chronology of Scripture, you find yourself in the prophets where God talks about a new covenant. It's found in the prophecy of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31, 32, 33, and 34. Now, here's what's amazing about this passage, folks. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 is the only passage that is quoted in its entirety in the New Testament. Now, there are whole lots of places where biblical writers, the New Testament writers, will come back and refer to the Old Testament. And they'll quote passages in the Old Testament. Boy, they do more than that. Sometimes Paul takes a passage over here and a passage over here in the Old Testament and puts them together, and you think it's one verse, but it's not. He has combined verses. That's the way God inspired him as he wrote his letters. The book of Hebrews has more Old Testament quotations then you can shake a stick at every, it seems like every other verse sometimes you're going to find it set off, indented in all caps, bold to tell us that it's an Old Testament quotation. But the writer of Hebrews in the eighth chapter, verses eight, nine, 10, 11, and 12, totally quotes, completely quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 in its entirety. That's important 
Because it's talking about a new covenant. I choose to use the writer of Hebrews. We're going to look at his quotation of this passage from Jeremiah. Knowing that when Jeremiah wrote it, the people were in exile. They were captive to the Babylonian Empire. It was Nebuchadnezzar who destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and sent the Jews packing, dispersed them all over his kingdom to dilute their ability to rebel and to march against him. And it was there in Jeremiah's day that Jeremiah gave hope to the people, talking about the ultimate peace of God with them that could be seen in practicing joy. Joy not because of circumstances, because circumstances during the exile were not happy. They were not good. But joy transcends those circumstances. And it talks about the fact that the people could end their desperation and end their period of imprisonment and exile still have that deep abiding joy. This is an amazing passage. Longest quote found in the New Testament of the Old Testament. It's there in its entirety, and we read it right now. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, everyone his brother, saying, know the Lord, for all will know me." From the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Other thing about this passage, it says there, I will effect a new covenant. Only place you'll find this phrase in the Old Testament. We have taken it as Christians and translated it into a new covenant. Testament. That's where we get that term. We have a Bible or revelation of God in two main sections. An old covenant. An old testament. And a new covenant. A new testament. Based upon this passage. Only place in the Old Testament. Where you will find those two words put together. New covenant. New testament. This is colossal. This is huge. This is a must for us to understand. What do we do with it? How do we approach it? I want to show you a game. It's called football. Troy, I'm drafting you not to be on my team, but to be my opponent. Would you come here, please? That's not a request. Football. You have a tabletop. You have a football that you make. Go ahead and take your coat off. You need to. You have a football. It can be made 
It can be made out of a worship guide if you want to, but don't do it right now. But you take this piece of paper and you fold it in such a way that it becomes the football. And the goal is to make a touchdown. And here's how you make a touchdown. You use your finger or any one of your fingers or your thumb, but your index finger is best. And you try to hang the football over the end of the table. This is a touchdown right here. This is not a touchdown. Okay, this is a touchdown. This is the object of the game. So let's go. You put it here. No, 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 you, you come back. Yeah, it's back and forth. Okay, that's pretty sorry. Okay, ooh, all right. Okay, that's better. That's better. Ooh, it fell off. I get a do-over. Let me have it back. Let me have it back. Yes, yes, yes. Matter of fact, I get to put it on the two-yard line. There, okay. Touchdown. Okay, touchdown. Now, <clears throat> you take, I have to kick a field goal. Kick a field goal. A little bit, a little wider, a little wider. There you go, there you go. Okay, no, a little wider. Okay, okay. It's your turn. It's your turn. Okay. It's seven to nothing. Oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. You don't understand. You don't understand. When that happens, it's called a technical foul. I get this ball right here, and there it is. Oh! Uh, do over, do over. Okay, your turn. Go ahead. Hurry. We're running out of time. It's almost overtime. Sorry, you are a loser. Let's give him a hand. Let's give him a hand. Okay. That's not football. That's, well, it's, it's what we used to play in school when we were given the opportunity. And we always called it football. But if you see a real football game... You know, it's nothing like this. That's what Jeremiah's trying to tell us. That we had this idea of what God is like. We had this idea of the covenant. But we really have no idea. Because when you see the real thing, it changes everything. Have you ever been to a wedding, a wedding reception where, uh, at least back in the day, the highlight of a wedding reception, among other things, when we're talking about eating, is cake, wedding cake. And you know what a wedding cake looks like. It's, it's, built, on, it's built with layers. And the bottom layer is, you know, huge. And then the next layer is a little bit smaller. And then the next layer. And then there may have little candy uh, columns or whatever, but the baker, and all of a sudden, right up here at the top, you've got, you know, the apex of the cake, the most important part. You'll have the little bride and the groom, you know, little figurine standing there. And the cake begins huge at the bottom and tapers up to the top. But can you imagine flipping that on its head? Starting down here with the smallest part, the smallest cake, the smallest layers, and building up this way. This is what the covenant, the new covenant is about. It's not starting down here big and huge and moving toward the top. You can look at it that way if you want to, but you'd be wrong about what God is trying to tell us through his prophet Jeremiah concerning the new covenant. 
The most important aspect of it, the greatest part of it, is yet to be. It's the inverted, flipped upside down on your head, wedding cake. It is trying to compare a kid's tabletop game of football to the real thing. There is no comparison. That leads us to the rest of the story. How is this new covenant... How does it surpass the one given to Noah, the one given to Abram, the one given to Moses? Let's see. The new covenant based upon Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, as quoted in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, is far different. Verse 9 tells us, we just read it, it's a new covenant covenant. The Bible tells us in chapter 8 of Hebrews, verse 10, the first phrase, that the laws are going to become inner principles in our lives. It tells us in the second portion of verse 10 that we're going to have fellowship with God. See, this wasn't really on the minds of the people when they were trying to live under the Mosaic covenant. The law. The law is what kept them right here. The law is what separated them from God. The law was impossible for them to keep. And yet God says in this new covenant, it's going to be totally different. The laws are going to be written upon your heart. They're going to become a part of you. It's not going to be a checklist. It's going to be my character. It's going to be ingrained in your heart and in your life. That's the rest of the story. That's why this game doesn't compare to real football. But if this is all you know, if this is all you've ever seen, boy, do you have something to look forward to. He tells us that there will be no ignorance of God. You notice how he put it there. He said, no one's going to have to go around and say, let me tell you about God. He said, in that time, when all this is fulfilled, all will know. All corners of the earth. They will be aware. They will understand. There will be no ignorance of who I am. He talks in verse 12 about forgiveness of sin. He says, I will be merciful to their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. I didn't read to you verse 13, but in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, following up on this passage, listen to what the writer tells us. He says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete Whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to disappear. So the writer quotes this whole section from Jeremiah 31, 31, 32, 33, 34. Only place where this entire quotation is going to be found. And he does it, what? To prove his point. To talk about the characteristics of the new covenant. Of what Christmas really is all about. Of what this pursuit is all about. And then he just wraps it up and he says, that which is old was only there to become obsolete. And the fact that the new has come means that the old is fading away. This is why this passage 
is life-changing. But there are two big Bible words that we need to know and understand. Two big Bible words that permeate this entire passage that can help us to see the difference between all we know and what really is. One of those words is righteousness. Righteousness. That is a huge Bible word. I don't use that word in conversation on an ongoing basis. I do use the first five letters, R-I-G-H-T, right. And that's the best definition of righteousness or righteous that you will find. What does it mean to be righteous? It means you were right, correct, in the right place. What is righteousness? Righteousness is that correct standing with God, that standing with God, that relationship with God that we strive after, that we reach toward, but never can attain on our own. But over there in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 9, where Paul is talking about all of the new things he has discovered since he met Jesus, you remember one of those things on that list? He says, I have a new righteousness that comes not on what I have done or what I can achieve, but it is the righteousness of Christ in me. That's new. That's the New Testament. That's the new covenant. God is pursuing us. And he is giving to us, prophesied 500 years before Jesus was born, through the prophet Jeremiah, telling us, That one day we will have the opportunity to have that right relationship with God that is secure, that is permanent, that is everlasting, that will never be taken away from us. And it's based not upon us, but it's based upon what God has done through Christ. Righteousness. There's a second big word in this passage. Justified justified. Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 sheds a little light on this portion of it. Paul there in that passage says, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. What is justification? Justified to justify, put it in any verbal or noun, adjective form you want. The key is, what does it mean? Ruby and Arnie, years ago, adopted a baby boy. They've been trying for years, had no success in conceiving, and they went through the proper channels and adopted a little baby boy. As sometimes it turns out, it wasn't a year until mom determined and realized that she was expecting. And she gave birth to, guess what? A baby boy. They were a year apart. They grew up together. One day, 
Ruby was out on the front porch and the neighbor lady came by. The kind of neighbor lady that always wants to know what's up. And the two boys, ages eight and nine now, are playing out in the yard. And the neighbor lady says, how are things going, Ruby? Great. I've always wanted to know. Which one of those is yours? She says, well, both of them are. And she presses her and says, well, no, I mean, I mean, which one is really yours? Which meaning, which one's adopted? Ruby thought about one nanosecond and said the most amazing phrase of her life. I've forgotten. I've forgotten. Justified. What does it mean? In Christ, we are justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. God has forgotten our sins. We are all adopted children in God's family. We know that. We are all brought into his family, though we didn't deserve to be included. And God, in his infinite mercy and omnipotence and perspective, what does he do with our sins? He forgets them. It's as though we'd never sinned. Back there in Galatians 3.24, what does Paul say? The purpose of the law is, was, always will be. It's to be our tutor. You know what a tutor is? Tutor is one who teaches, one who points you in a particular way. Pedagogy, pedagogy, it's the term that directly relates to this word in the New Testament. One who instructs, one who points. And what does the law What does it tutor us to do? What does it point towards? It points towards Jesus. It points towards the new covenant, the new testament. It points us all toward the fact that we cannot be right on our own. That we cannot be justified just as if I'd never sinned. Apart from one person, one choice regarding that person. And that's Jesus the Christ. Now that's a whole lot to take in. At a time of year when things are supposed to be simple, when things are supposed to be red and green, when packages are supposed to be everywhere, when the festive atmosphere can take us away from really the wonder and the splendor of what God has done for us, prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus was born through Jeremiah that he was going to do something new in our midst. So I think what God's trying to tell us is very simple. If this is your view of what's real, if that's all you've known, 
open your eyes and see. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to come before you. To pray knowing that you understand us, that you hear us, that you love us, that you're pursuing us. Father, teach us to be attentive to your word. Help us to be still and know who you are. And Father, most of all, in these closing moments of our time together here in this room, help us to make the choices that reflect the truth. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. We wrap up this hour the way we do every time we meet. Shouldn't be anything new or drastic in anyone's mind. But just in case, maybe you've never been challenged to do what we challenge ourselves to do every time we meet, and that is to make choices. If you're here today and God is moving in your life and you're ready to make some significant spiritual choices, we do so in these closing moments. And some of those decisions need to be made in front of us, in front of people, to the world. If you're here today and you've never asked Jesus the Christ, the the center of the new covenant, the one who gives us a right standing with God, the one who bestows upon us justification, justified just as if I'd, just as if you'd never sinned. If you want to become part of a God's adopted family, like those of us who are followers of Jesus. We offer that. We offer that choice right now. We'll have ministers and deacons standing here and to profess your faith in him, to step out, to make that choice. Greatest choice you'll ever make in life. Let us pray for you. Let us encourage you. Come forward. Maybe you're here today and you know the Lord just hadn't told anyone, haven't haven't professed it to the world. Do so today. Believer's baptism. There's water up there. What is baptism? Let's talk about it. Something that you experience of your own choosing. If that's the desire of your heart to identify with Christ as he has commanded his children to do, let's talk about that. Maybe you need a church to call your own. Maybe you're feeling led to join our church, to be a part of this church, First Baptist Louisville. Great churches all around us. If you hadn't found the one where God's leading you, where you feel that you can plug in and serve, then consider who we are. And how would you join? You get up, you step forward. We encourage you. That's not all there is to church membership, of course, but it's a step in the right direction. And then for most of us, I know good and well that week in and week out, most of us are church folks, whatever that means. But if this is all you really understand about what God's doing in this world, Or if you're looking at things in just the opposite way that God is so clear in describing, then connect to the truth and see the big picture and go beyond just what your thought process is and start seeing things from the heavenly point of view. And whatever that does to alter the way you live, change the way you talk, the way you treat people, So let it be. Amen.
That's our invitation. We stand together. We wait here as God leads. You step out. Make that choice now.